My name is Mimi Bouchard, and I'm a personal development junkie that is here to help you transform your life so that you can truly tap into your ultimate potential. I'm a meditation teacher and a podcaster, and in this podcast, I am raw, I am real, and I share everything I possibly can to make this journey of self-discovery and transformation easier for you. Enjoy. Hello, everyone. I'm so excited for today's episode. We have Sage and Serena Dyer here. They are the daughters of the crazy, amazing, well-known Wayne Dyer. And he's like the the king of motivation and and has left such a legacy um, in his name. If you're into personal development at all, you definitely know who that is. So his two incredible daughters have recently written a book called The Knowing. And I wanted to have them on the podcast to talk about their experience writing the book, um, you know, their experience with their dad, who sadly passed away about six years ago, and how that taught them so much about life as a whole and what made them want to write this book and, and be here with us today. So welcome, Sage and Serena. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you thank for you. having us. Yeah, yeah this is exciting so for us. Good. I'm so excited too. And my audience, they're they're all into personal development. We can talk about everything. And and this book I just got, so I haven't read it yet, but I'm so excited to read it because I'm actually really, really interested in learning more about what other people think of, you know, life kind of after death. And I would love to hear more about, you know, the lessons you guys write about in this book and talk about and and just kind of how it initially started. So maybe um, you guys want to kind of tell the listeners how this book was birthed and what your intention was behind it and maybe both of your experiences since your dad passed away. Yeah, I can just jump in and say, um, I think that Sage and I both had a knowing, no pun intended. Uh, No, pun intended, actually. We both had a knowing before we wrote this book, before our dad even passed away, that um, there was this uh, sense that we would kind of do some of his work. So maybe we didn't know exactly in what way or how, um, but uh, before he passed away, I actually wrote a book with him about growing up with spiritual parents and Sage did as well. She wrote a children's book with him. And in the um, last few weeks that he was alive, actually Sage was on the road with him in Australia um, and New Zealand yeah. and was, you know, sharing the stage with him in some capacity. And so, which I had done as well uh, prior to that. So I think that there was always this sense that maybe we would be able to continue doing some of his work, but I never thought it would be after he passed away because I didn't think he was going to pass away, which sounds crazy because we know that everybody dies. Right. But when somebody is so close to you and they're like larger than life for Mm -hmm. you, I think you kind of have this idea that like that day will never really come. Or if it does, it seems really far away. So when he did actually pass away, it was like you said, almost six years ago, um, both of us were both Sage and myself were really kind of, I think actually maybe all of our siblings, cause we're two of eight kids. And so I think that we all had this idea that um, we were going to be able to connect with him from the other side, which probably sounds a little bit nuts, but I think when you grow up with very spiritual parents, both our mother and our father were very spiritual and they have this idea that they raise you on this idea that, um, you know, you're a spiritual being having a human experience and the spirit lives on. Um, it didn't seem like a stretch for us and therefore it wasn't. 
And what I mean by that is, I think we were both very open right away to the idea that even though he was not going to be, you know, one phone call away, like he had been when we were, you know, having him in like the, the human way, we could still reach out and we could still find him if we, if we, I don't know, could just, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and for me, everything Serena just said is very true for me also, except there was a, an, an element also of skepticism for me. Like I grew up around these principles that, you know, Serena just talked about and uh, with parents who believe that death is nothing but a, a shedding of the body and uh, it's just a shift in energy and that, you know, no one ever really leaves and on and on. But Number one, it never really applied to me, any of that, because I um, hadn't lost anybody that I was very close to. So I never was sort of forced to take a look at my beliefs. And secondly, I was a little bit skeptical, I think, of all of that to a degree. I mean, I believed in it, but I was also skeptical. Like when my dad would talk about, you know, when his mother passed away, that he could feel her and he that she appeared to him at the foot of his bed one night. I was like, but did she really, (laughs) you know, like I believed him, but there was a part of me that was like, but how, you know? And so I felt like when my dad passed away um, through the devastation and all of that, I was sort of presented with a crossroads of, am I going to believe that he's still here with me and um, that I can communicate with him and that I can grow and learn from this experience? Or am I going to see it as, this is the end of my relationship with my dad and try and cope with something so final like that. And um, I had some poignant moments, which we can share in a little, but to answer your question, um, you know, there were things that happened that led me down the path of, I'm going to believe that he's still with me. And in fact, I know that he is still with me and so many things transpired after to convince me of that. And both Serena and I, you know, along this journey felt called to write. And we started each writing separately, not planning to write a book together. For me, not even necessarily planning to write a book, just feeling really called to write down these experiences. And this transformation that I felt like was taking place for me, because I was 25 years old when he passed away. And his work was something that was so present in my life, but it wasn't, like I said, it didn't apply to me yet. So Uh, writing about how it was applying to me for the first time was something that excited me. And then somewhere along the way, Serena and I realized we're both writing our, you know, uh, our writing had a lot of similarities and uh, similar themes sort of weaved throughout them. And we figured out that we could combine our writing and, and create a book together, which is how the knowing was born. Wow. That's amazing. Thank you for sharing that. And this is such an interesting conversation for me because I don't know 100% what I truly deeply know and believe. I have a very deep intuition. I always have, but I still am trying to personally discover what my spirituality is. I teach meditation. I feel like I channel things all the time in a way. I am very in tune with myself, but I've never had someone close to me die just like you before this happened. And, you know, it's, it's a very scary thing to me still death. When I think about it, I, I get, it's one of the things I'm most fearful of. And I think, you know, realizing that there's so much more to us that we can't see, 
it, it really is, it's comforting to think about. And it also makes sense in a way to me, I just haven't experienced it yet. Um, how I would love to hear more about both of you, kind of your beliefs around this and, and why you think the way that you think when it comes to spirituality and people passing on and still being there. Yeah. Well, so I know that you haven't read the book yet, but I'll just give you a little, um, uh, bit of what, what I wrote about and sorry, I got distracted before because I, my three kids are home. They're all on summer break. And one of them is trying to get in the room, even though she knows she's not supposed to. So <laughs> she keeps taking me out of my focus here. Um, anyway, I'm about to like side text my nanny something. Um, uh, I lost my dad. And then within two years of losing him, I lost my stepson who was 19. He, um, he was 19. He was my husband's only son at the time. Uh, we have a two-year-old son now, but I wasn't pregnant with him. We didn't have him uh, back when Mason passed away. And my husband had raised him as a single father his entire life. And um, and I was his stepmother for nine years that we were together. So um, I can tell you that the experience for me of death, of losing my father was um, was really profound in the sense that I lost somebody that was so close to me, but there was no fear, no guilt, no regret um, in the experience of losing him because I loved him and he loved me and I adored him and he adored me. And he lived 75 years and he really didn't want, our dad really didn't want to become like very old. Um, and he had had such a full life. So all of my human judgments, if you will, on what it means to have lived your dharma or fulfilled your purpose here, they were all sort of like the boxes were all checked. He lived a long time. He had a great life. It was very full. So as much as it was awful losing him, I didn't feel sad for him because he also was um, somebody that talked a lot about his excitement for the next phase or um, how much he looked forward to um, the next great adventure, which we wrote about in, in our book. But when I lost Mason, <clears throat> It was completely different, totally different experience. And the, uh, the emotion, the feeling, everything that I felt was much, much harder to find peace in. So if I could find the, the desire to connect with my dad from spirit world right away, um, I could not find that with Mason at all. And it was not, it wasn't for a lack of wanting, you know, of course I wanted to connect with him in that way. It was because I had so much guilt and so much regret, and so much um, pain that here was somebody who did not live 75 years, who died as a teenager, who died as a result of an accidental drug overdose. And so if there were ever reasons to say that um, this was an accident, this was a tragedy that could have been avoided, this, this was it. But actually, I honestly think that the experience of having lost my dad before Mason and then just the spiritual upbringing that we had, um, it really helped, I think, to actually shift that. So what I mean by that is when Mason passed, um, as much as I was just marinating in that guilt and that shame and that fear, I remember my husband saying to me, um, you know, Serena, you're the one who taught me that uh, we live in a universe where there are no accidents, where everything is 
like on divine time and is part of a bigger plan that even though we can't see it, we have to trust that there's some purpose to it all. And I remember um, him saying, why are you viewing um, Mason and his passing as though it was an accident? If you believe that we live in a universe where there are no accidents. So anyway, in other words, eventually I got to the point where I was able to shift even the way I was viewing his death. And to view it as also having been divinely on time. And that um, who was I to say that his 19 years was too short and that it wasn't exactly the number of years he was supposed to have here. And I really do believe that we live in a universe where there are no accidents and that it is all divinely orchestrated. And there is something bigger than us moving the pieces around. And just because I don't know why, certain things happened the way they did. It doesn't mean that one day I won't and that I can't find the peace in the midst of that. And so I think that that, that was actually um, something that really changed the way I was viewing death. So if I viewed death when my dad died and that was the closest person I had ever lost before, if I viewed that as like a great spiritual experience and getting to know him from like the other side, um, my stepson's passing was a totally different experience but it was also one where I had the choice to look at his passing also from a spiritual perspective. And in doing so, I actually was able to connect with him and I'm not a medium. I don't have any ability to like talk to the dead, but I, I um, actually had a dream where he came in the form of a real visitation. And um, I think Sage, you could talk a little bit about how we came to know about those visitation dreams. Yeah, please. I'm so interested in this. That's beautiful. And thank you so much for sharing that. I can't imagine how hard that would have been, but so deeply insightful comparing both of those two deaths and just that's life. Yeah. Well, and because the, the, at the end of the day, the question that we always have to ask ourselves is, is the way I'm looking at this, bringing me closer to God, closer to the feeling of peace or further away? And we can look at Mason's passing as though it were an accident that could have been avoided and that, um, you know, blame God and blame everything else and, and be upset for the rest of our lives. Or we can look at it as though it was on time. It was just as on time as my dad's. And which way we view that, you know, I know which one brings me peace and I know which one brings me closer to feeling God. And I know which one brings me closer to feeling Mason. So why wouldn't I pick that one? Um, so anyway. Thank you. I'd love to hear more about these visitations. I am <laughs> yeah. so interested in this. Weird, we also kind of like scared of it. I don't know if it's because of the conditioned movie, like movies that I've seen when I was a kid and stuff. Like I have a very big block in my third eye area. My my intuitive coach tells me every week, we got to clear that third eye area. And I'm like, not yet. <laughs> Yeah. Um, well, just to answer quickly your your first question, and then I'll definitely go into that. Um, when you said that, you know, you, you have such a fear of losing somebody that you love, I, I really could relate to that because prior to losing my dad, I would say that, you know, my biggest fear in life was losing somebody who I loved more so than my own death that I don't think I really contemplated prior to that. Um, so when my dad died, I, you know, I was obviously grief stricken and just 
totally devastated and, and, and lost. And I remember in those early days, having a lot of moments of um, becoming so overwhelmed with the grief. And then, you know, I would be sobbing and just unable to contemplate that I would never see my dad again, speak to him, you know, it just seems unfathomable to our brain chemistries to our psychology. And, um, and so I would constantly have those moments. And then I would, it was like my, my mind would say, just call dad. And then I would have to realize again, you know, I'll never do that again. And then the devastation would kick back in. And it was this like cycle of thoughts that I was happy having that were really keeping me stuck and very in a dark place. And, you know, and I remember there was a time that I was in the shower and I, that happened again, where I was just so grief stricken. And I thought, just call dad. And then it was, you'll never do that again. And then it was all the never agains. And, um, and then I, 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 I stopped myself and I said, Sage, you've got to stop doing this. You're torturing yourself, you know? And I, I thought, you know, I've had a lifetime of knowing and loving and being loved by my dad. What would he say to me now? What would he say? What have I heard him say to other people in the same situation? And I felt like I heard him say to me in my mind in that moment, Sage, you can either choose to make this the worst thing that ever happened to yourself. You can continue to feel sorry for yourself. You can put your life on hold. You can, you know, stay in these fear-based thoughts of never again, should have, could have, you know, on and on. Or you could just decide right now to view this as divinely orchestrated, like Serena was saying, as on time, and to see it as an opportunity to grow as a person, to grow uh, in in compassion towards other people, and to foster a relationship with him, with my dad, um, and to apply, you know, these these amazing teachings that I was so blessed to to grow up, sorry, marinating in, and um, and then I felt like I heard him say to me. I, I was reminded of a story that I had heard him tell many times. Like Serena said, I was in Australia and New Zealand for the three weeks leading up to when he passed away. He, we had just gotten home like 48 hours before that. And I, so I heard him speak so many times and he told this story after a woman uh, said that her best friend had just passed away the day before, but she had been wanting to come to his talk for, you know, she had the ticket for years. So she decided to still come, even though she was so, lost in that moment and so devastated and grief stricken. And he told her this story and I was reminded of it in that moment. And it was a story about a man whose uh, son went to war and he got um, a knock on the door one morning and was told that his son had passed away in battle. And then that night, the man went to a party in town and he was dancing with friends and, and having a good time. And a woman came up to him because the town, everybody knew what had happened. And she said, I just don't understand. How could you be out dancing? You just learned that your son passed away. And he said, sooner or later, I'm going to have to move on from this or it will, it will destroy me. And I'm just choosing sooner. And I remembered that story and I thought, okay, I can choose sooner right now. And that doesn't mean that, you know, 
that I'm never going to feel sadness again. And it's also not to say that feeling the grief and the sadness isn't very important and natural and normal, but it was just an opportunity for me to say to myself, you can also feel joy in these moments. You can remember dad in a beautiful light and you can laugh about him. And, you know, it was just, I felt like it was a shift for me. I, there's no set amount of time that I have to stay stuck or down or, you know, on and on. I felt nervous to return back to school. The semester was starting a few days later. I, did, I felt like maybe people would judge me that I came back so soon. So I was maybe going to sit it out. I didn't know if I was ready. And it was just like permission for myself to, to grieve, but to also feel joy. And it was the start for me from, from that shower. <laughs> it was the start of experiencing the miracles and viewing his death, his death in a, in a different light. And that's when I started to experience him. And, um, yeah, and let me just, ways, oh, I, I'll just jump in real okay. quick and say that, uh, I could tell Sage is a little bit out of breath because she's so pregnant. <laughs> Sorry that I'm nine months pregnant. I get out of breath when I talk. <laughs> You're doing great. Um, <laughs> thank you. Before our dad died. So he died August 30th, 2015. And, um, nine months before that, he had sent each of us, each of his children, um, a DVD of himself with Esther Hicks. And, um, it was a recording that they had done. And, um, he thought it was really important that each of his children watch this. And so he wanted, he said that if we wanted to have Christmas money from him, uh, or, you know, a Christmas present from him, we needed to watch this DVD of him with Esther Hicks and write a letter letting him know what our favorite part was and um, and send that back to him. <clears throat> and so I remember when we watched it, this was just about nine months before he passed away. And um, the thing that I wrote the letter about, the thing that really stuck out to me the most was that Esther Hicks, you know, she channels Abraham and she was, it, it's so weird to say, Abraham was describing, I guess, through Esther about how um, when Esther's husband passed away, when Jerry passed away, Esther, as somebody who can channel spirit, she was expecting that she would be able to channel Jerry and to feel Jerry and to be in connection with him um, even after he died. And she was not having that experience. And she was really upset and really concerned and really afraid. And through a few series of events that Abraham describes, um, Esther was reminded from spirit that in order to connect with Jerry, where Jerry is now, she had to become like what it was that she was seeking. So she had to become like the energy of where Jerry was. And that energy is one of love, of just pure divine love or joy or peace or all of the um, emotions that are high vibrating, high frequency emotions. And that when she was looking for him from the place of grief, or sadness, she could not find him because that was not where he was. And so once she had that reminder, she called it her high flying disc. Once she had that reminder, she returned to her high flying disc. You know, she raised her energy up in other words, and then she found him and she was able to connect with him. And so I wrote my letter to my dad about how that really stood out to me. I thought that was like a significantly um, important message, but I didn't really know why. And then it was actually the day that he died that um, I was on the phone with his assistant when she found him. Um, and so 
that was a very surreal experience. And then I actually had to call Sage and tell Sage and listen while my mom called our brother. And we had to start breaking the news to our family. And it was just a really, really awful experience. But I was never sad. I, I mean, I wasn't, that's not true. I wasn't crying. I wasn't crying when I realized that he was gone. It was almost like the shock was too great. But when I got home that night, and it was the first time that I was alone, um, and I said to him, okay, if this, if everything that you've spent your whole life teaching is real, then I need a sign. And um, I really thought like light bulbs were going to like explode and that like, you know, I was going to see like shooting stars in the sky or something, but nothing happened. And then I just, I heard this, I felt this urge or I heard this voice. I don't even know if I could describe it. Something was telling me to listen to his podcast. And this is 2015. Podcasts were not as popular as they are now. I didn't know even that I had an app on my iPhone that said podcast, but I just kept feeling this urge to listen to his podcast. So I just typed in Wayne Dyer on that podcast app and I clicked play on the first one that came up and it was him talking to somebody. Um, and it was really nice to hear his voice, but it did not feel at all, um, like the sign I was looking for. But at the, at the very end, the last like 30 seconds of the podcast, he said, now, if everybody listening can take a moment to send my daughter, Serena, some love, because she is going through a really hard time. I would really appreciate that. And that to me was the sign. That was it. And I knew that that meant, I knew that that was the reminder that I needed, that if I wanted to feel him, to connect with him, to experience the signs and the synchronicities, I had to connect with him in the place of joy and of love. And when that happened, I just started laughing and crying and like, sneezing and I was like snotty. And I remember saying to him, I can't believe you pulled it off. I just can't believe you pulled it off. And I was almost laughing. And I was, I think saying, I can't believe you pulled it off is weird. Right. But it was the, the phrase that kept going through my mind because our dad would talk about how excited he was for the next great adventure. And I couldn't believe that he was actually there doing it now. And, um, and from day one, that was the first day that he passed away. And from day one, I had this awareness that if I was going to continue to get signs from him or messages from him or communications from him, I had to go to that high flying disc that Esther Hicks talked about, you know, when she um, found Jerry, that like I had to go there where he was and he was in the place of love. So if I could think of him from the space of love, I could feel him and get signs and um, Sage and I both had crazy visitation dreams and all the signs. I mean, the book, the knowing half of the book is about not half, but a lot of the book is about the signs that we started to get. Um, I mean, the, and the just synchronicities and, mm -hmm. and knowings about things that actually happened before he passed away that let us know that he knew his time was coming and it just confirmed everything that he taught that this was divinely orchestrated and on time. And, um, but yeah, but for me, I didn't immediately return to my high flying disc on day one. It took me a few weeks. And then, and then it was when I did that I, like, I, I could share that dream now that we were, um, I had a, it was probably three weeks after he passed away. And it was shortly after I started to just shift and choose 
shift my perspective and choose different thoughts about his death, you know, um, which isn't something that happens in an instant and it doesn't happen all day. It's a choice and it's something that you need to remind yourself of constantly. Um, but as I started to do that, I did start to receive some really, really incredible signs. And I had this one dream where, um, I was in my apartment. I live in New York city and I was laying in my bed. And I, at the time I lived in a studio. So the door to my apartment was right by my bed. And, um, and so I was asleep actually. And my alarm went off and I was like, Oh, I, I want 10 more minutes of sleep. So I hit the snooze button and, um, I immediately fell back asleep, but in my, uh, sleep state, I, I was dreaming and I, and I was in my dream, I was exactly where I was in real life. I was laying in my bed in my apartment in New York and I was looking at my phone and, uh, I'm, I'm doing that. And then I hear my door open. So I sit up and I look and it's my dad walking into my apartment and he had this grin on his face, like a, like a smirk. Like he was, you know, like, Oh, I got you here, you know? And I jumped out of my bed and I ran towards him. And then I stopped and I said, dad, I know that I'm sleeping right now, but this is not a dream. This is real. And he said, yes, this is real. And I said, you're really here. And he said, I'm really here. And I, um, then I became a little bit skeptical (laughs) and I said, okay, if you're really here, I could touch you. And he said, so touch me. And then he put his arms out and I grabbed his forearms with my hands and I could feel his hairy arms. I mean, so real. And, um, in that moment, I dropped my skepticism and I hugged him and we talked and just shared just a beautiful moment and a knowing. We talked about how I was dreaming, I was sleeping, but that he was really here. I mean, it was just such a surreal moment. And um, then eventually my alarm went off and I woke up and I was so, I mean, the, the feeling and the energy that I got from that dream, it carried me for weeks. It just it elevated me. I felt so surrounded by love and, um, from my dad and just like, wow, I just had something, nothing like that had ever happened to me before. I had never had like this encounter with spirit that was so convincing to me. Cause like I said, I'm more skeptical. And, um, then shortly thereafter, I came into contact with a, a woman named Karen Noe, who has become a friend of ours and she's a psychic medium and, and intuitive and, she's really wonderful. And she asked me, I was having a conversation with her. She asked me, have you had uh, any dreams about your dad? And I was like, Oh my God, yes, I have. And she was like, well, before you tell me, you'll know it's a true visitation. If uh, two things happen, one of them is that it's lucid dreaming, which means that you're aware that you're dreaming. And uh, the other one is that there's some sort of invitation or acknowledgement of touching. And I was like, Karen, <laughs> I just had a dream and I have not stopped talking about it for those exact, those are the two biggest moments of it for me. It was this like, I, you know, this lucid dreaming and the touching, it just was too real. And uh, so she was like, yes, you did. You had a visitation. I told her the dream and it just confirmed for me what I already really knew. Um, but it was so great to have that confirmation from somebody else. And so I shared that with my family, what Karen had told me. And I don't, 
I don't mean to say that if you had a dream that you believe was real and those things didn't happen means it's not. But for me, this was some real validation that what I experienced was real. And, um, and then, yeah, Serena had a really amazing dream about her stepson and she's had some about our dad, but this is amazing. Yeah. Well, <laughs> just really quick, um, with, with Karen, with Karen Noe, who Sage was just talking about, um, shortly after, uh, Sage had that conversation with her where Karen confirmed that this was a real visitation. Sage had booked an appointment with her, um, you know, as a medium to, to have a reading with her and, and, um, Karen is in New Jersey and Sage was in New York. So of course my mom and my sister Sky and myself just happened to go to New York that same weekend and crash yeah. her. Karen's booked up like <laughs> two years in advance, but she yeah. squeezed me in. Wow. And then they coincidentally were coming up that weekend when they weren't. They they crashed my appointment. But. Yeah, we totally went on purpose. But um when we went to this session with Karen it was really cool because we had each said something that we wanted our dad to say to us in, in the reading, um, something that would not be public because, you know, he was a, a very well-known person. And so if a medium said, Oh, your, your dad is saying Maui, I would be like, okay, well, you know, you know, if you read any of his books, he talks about Maui, he lived on Maui, that wouldn't be hard for them to figure out. But if they said something very specific, then, um, then it would be, you know, a little bit more concrete proof that it was really real. And um, for me, when we walked in, after we sat down, uh, Karen said, congratulations, your dad is saying that you're pregnant. And I said, immediately, I said, um, no, I have a six month old. And I'm definitely not pregnant. And my dad met my daughter before he passed away. And so I was already thinking like, she doesn't have any skill. This is not real because I didn't think there was any chance that I was pregnant. And, um, you know, I had such a little baby. I had just given birth. And anyway, she said like, no, your, your dad is pretty insistent that you're pregnant. And he's saying this, this fireworks, 4th of July, something about fireworks in the 4th of July. And I was like, I don't know what that would mean, Karen, because yeah, we spent 4th of July with our dad on Maui and we would watch the fireworks, but we didn't, um, I don't know, like it just wasn't specific. And I remember Sage and my sister Sky and my mom kind of looking at me like, are you pregnant? And I was like, no. And so anyway, when we left her office, after she had said a whole bunch of things to each one of us, the exact things we asked our dad to mention, um, all these different things that nobody would have known, we stopped to get a pregnancy test and I was pregnant. And I just didn't remember the one time <laughs> like my husband and I had hooked up because <laughs> I was totally drunk. It was right after my dad uh, passed away. So it's like, you know, one night of drinking way too much. And I just forgot that that had happened. And, um, my daughter was due on the 4th of July. And so that was the connection. And, um, and she was born on the 1st of July. And while I was in labor in the hospital, um, Sage was there and Sage said, Serena, Karen is calling. Should I answer? And I'm like literally about to push. And I was like, answer, answer. And she said, um, Karen is saying that uh, dad just wants you to know that he's here. He, he said that um, he, he needed to call Sage because he knew I wouldn't be able to answer for whatever reason, but that um, Karen just wanted to let me know that my dad was saying he was right there with me. And at first I was like, wait, can he see anything? And like, I was like all freaked out, but then I was like, no, I know he just means like, 
from a spiritual place. And um, so anyway, once we had this, like, I guess what I want to say, because you were saying before you have, you haven't had the experience of losing anybody close to you and you have a fear of it. I think that's really normal. And I think that um, I did too. And like Sage said, she did too. But I think that having the idea that, that this experience in the human form is really is the classroom. And when we die, we go home. Um, and believing that uh, the spirit lives on, that this is this human experience is just, you know, what, what is that popular phrase? They say a parenthesis in eternity. You know, this is just a tiny parenthesis. Your life, our lives are just a little parenthesis in eternity. And, um, and I think that for both Sage and myself, because of the way we were raised and because we heard our dad talk about death so often and talk about it in a way that was positive, um, even though we had normal grief and um, pain over losing him, we both had an openness to the, to the belief or to the idea that he was still here. And I think that because we had that belief or that openness, uh, we were able to experience the signs. And I think that there's a lot of people where they do not have that belief. And so even though the signs might still be there, they are not, they are not, um, they're not open to, to receiving them and therefore they don't, or they have such an attachment placed on, you know, the sign has to come in this form around this day or at this time or in this way. And therefore they're just closed in general to, to actually hearing from their loved well, yeah. one. And a, a lot of this stuff, it's easy to say, well, that was just a coincidence or, you know, um, I, I mean, yeah, I had a, I could share a sign that happened to me in the early days. I, when I had been traveling with my dad in Australia and New Zealand, it was a trip that um, Hay House, his publishing company had, was paying for and sponsoring because he was doing Hay House events. And they actually paid for my sister Sky and I to do the trip as well. And they paid for us to fly first class, international. It was really incredible. And I had never flown first class like that before. And um, so my dad loved to tease us on this trip about us sitting in first class and Oh, are you enjoying your champagne and your warm nuts and your, I mean, international first class is like next level. It's lay flat beds and TVs and meals. And it was just um, incredible. And my, my dad loved to tease us about it the whole time. And he kept saying, don't get used to this. You're not flying first class, you're, you know? And um, it was like a theme of the trip because we were constantly flying to new cities and, and, on planes. And, um, and even my brother-in-law was on that trip, but he paid his own way for the trip. Sky's husband, because he, uh, was not a part of the show. Sky was singing and I, like I was, you know, at times sharing the stage with my dad. So we were part of the show. Mo would sit in coach. And so when we would board the plane first, we would be in our seats. He would have to walk past us to get to his seats. And my dad loved to tease him as he walked by, like, do you even have a seat back there or do you all just pile up and, you know, hold on for dear life? Or if you get hungry, come up, I'll save my bread roll for you. Things like that. Our dad loved to tease people and he had a very good sense of humor, but um, on all of these flights, my dad, uh, if there was a seat to be his, his uh, 
what's it called? The person who travel agent. flights, travel agent, <laughs> yeah. sorry, nine months pregnant, um, knew to give him seat to B because he just liked to be able to say, am I in seat to B or, or not to B? And just because he was a dork and liked to be able to make that joke on every flight. And so after he passed away, we were, I was in New York, Serena was in Florida. I immediately flew to Florida, but then we all decided to fly to Hawaii because that's where my dad had been when he passed away. That's where his body was. And that's where so much of our relationship with our dad was built around Maui because that's where he lived since I was 11. Um, pretty much full time. And so we decided to go there as a family, those of us that could. And uh, Serena and I were flying together um, a couple days before everybody else. We just wanted to get, get out there quickly. Serena called me the night before our flight and said, I just upgraded mine and my husband's seats to first class because they were flying with their six month old, five month old. She was at like, the time. Four, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she and Serena said it was it wasn't very expensive, um, considering how expensive it usually is, you should just upgrade your seat. And I was like, No, I'm definitely not doing that. Uh I I could sleep standing up. I'm so tired. I don't I'm not gonna spend the money, but and I knew she wanted me in first class so she could pawn her baby off on me the whole time. <laughs> so I was like, I'm gonna be as far away from you in the back of the plane as possible. And um we get to the airport in the morning and Serena and Matt check in at their, you know, check-in place. And Serena's teasing me like, Oh, look at first class. Where are you sitting? You know, whatever. She probably gets that from her dad. And so I go to check in because I'm on a separate reservation and she, you know, she's typing away at the computer. We're flying Virgin America. I've never flown Virgin America before. And um, the woman hands me my ticket and she says, okay, you're all set. Takes my bag. She says, enjoy first class. And I'm like, looking around, like, is she talking to me? Like, <laughs> and I look at my ticket and it's seat 2B. And I'm just dumbfounded because I'm like, should I say something? But I don't. I walked away and I'm like, <laughs> Serena's like, oh, where are you sitting? And I was like, I got first class. And it's seat 2B, you know, and in that moment, I knew that it was my dad having a hand in that because then it actually made me very emotional. It was funny, but it made me emotional because I felt like there was a part of me, I was 25 years old. My dad was still, you know, I was still in school. My dad was supporting me. I still had a lot of like growing up to do, you know, and I felt like uh, sort of not angry, but just this feeling of like, how could you leave me when I still have so much growing up to do? And I felt like him doing that and somehow getting me into first class, into his seat, his 2B seat, uh, was him saying, I'm always taking care of you. I'm still here. I've still got you. You know, and it made me cry because it was such a, a profound moment of knowing that he would still be there taking care of me. And I didn't need to worry and that it was on time. And our, our dad always said, we come here with a round trip ticket and we celebrate that first leg of that trip. You know, the birth, we celebrate our birthdays for our whole lives. It's such a beautiful experience. Nobody questions a birth. Uh, but then, but then when our, our return ticket is called, we so often question it, fear it for ourselves, for others. You know, um, you could spend your whole life being afraid of the day 
that you die that you don't even utilize this time here in the classroom. And same with the death of your loved ones. And just, you know, if you reflect on that and you realize that every person that comes here leaves here one day and it's not for us to question, but instead to just live and love and enjoy. And, and when you lose, you know, for me, I'll just speak for myself, recognizing that his ticket came due on time was a beautiful moment of surrender and acceptance that has shifted this experience for me where one where I know that my father is still with me daily, hourly, you know? Wow. Thank you guys so much for sharing these stories. I've had goosebumps like five (laughs) times during this conversation. So cool. And just incredible how tapped in you are. And you're so right. You know, I think it was Serena that said that, you know, you're not going to be able to receive signs if you're not on that level, on that vibration, open to it. And so many people are never even open to it that they never experience it. And you need to be open to it to experience it, right? So that is so interesting. And I think so many people listening, including myself right now, you know, I feel a lot better about death in general. Of course, (laughs) I don't want it, but, you know, it's just seeing it through that new lens is really powerful and being open to the possibility of it not being necessarily a goodbye. Um, Do you think if the person that passed was not interested in this work and didn't believe in it, you would still be able to communicate with them? I do. Yes, I do. Because I think that they have a temporary human experience and their soul came here for two reasons to grow and to expand. At least that's kind of what we were, we were raised on. And, um, and even if they didn't have the spiritual upbringing or the, the connection to spiritual teachings in this lifetime, they go back to the place where that is all there is. They go back to the place where it's infinite love. It's all spirit. And it's, um, it's, of, of, you know, some people will say it's the right hand of God. Other people will say it's just the universe um, in in one field. And uh, one of the things I've heard is that my dad actually said through a medium to one of us um, that he's only one frequency, one thought away. And I think that for people that didn't have the spiritual upbringing or the connection to spiritual teachings while they were here, it doesn't matter because they still are just a spirit. And they still are just a spirit having this human experience. And whatever they experienced in their lifetime, they experienced for the purpose of growing and expanding their soul. And even if we look at those things and think they were bad or they were, um, I don't know, not like this Wayne Dyer type of person, right? This like very spiritually connected individual, that person's soul is still just as just as much a part of God, just as much a part of the divine as St. Francis and Wayne Dyer and anybody else that has a, a great spiritual teacher yeah, role and, in their lifetime. And I, I think also that uh, we experience, you know, when we are confined to these human bodies, we're experiencing everything in our lives through our five senses. You know, everything that you perceive is coming from your eyes, you know, what you see, what you smell, what you hear and on and on. And, um, 
I think that that is such a limited, you know, it's like a speck in eternity for, for what we can perceive as to what's out there. I mean, we, if you really think about it, you know that these senses that we have are limited because they deceive us all the time. I mean, right now there are AM and FM radio waves coursing through the room. And because I'm not a radio and I don't have an antenna, I I don't know what they feel like. I have I completely disregard that they're even there. And it's also, you know, I, my body tells me that I'm sitting still in a chair right now, but in reality, I'm sitting on a planet that's hurling through space and that's rotating on, you know, a few different axis axes. And, um, so we know that these senses deceive us and, and, uh, paint a picture that feels like reality and that's comfortable for us, but it, you know, there's so much more out there. And I think that when we shed these human bodies that we, remember that and know that possibly for the first time maybe for some people it's not for the first time maybe you did know that while you were here but whether you did or didn't I think when we shed our bodies we know it wholeheartedly you see from a 365 degree angle instead of this small you know point that we're limited to right now and we actually have a a friend, uh, somebody who my dad um, discovered her work and helped her get out there, Anita Morjani, who had a near-death experience. And her book is incredible. It's called Dying to Be Me. If you're interested in this topic, I highly recommend it because um, she talks about, she had this, she had end-stage cancer. She was dying. She was like 80 pounds in the hospital, tumors the size of lemons all throughout her body. And her family was, you know, she was in hospice. She was being prepared to be taken off life support and, you know, and go. And she had this uh, near-death experience where she sort of crossed over, but her heart was still beating. And she experienced her father who had already passed on, who she had had um, not an always positive relationship with. And um, she was able also to experience many dimensions at once. She could see her family members trying to make travel plans to come say goodbye to her in the hospital and things like that. And she had this um, experience while she was on the other side, and she calls it in the other realm, where she knew that if she returned to her body, she could heal, even though nobody had ever healed from this stage of cancer before. And that she had a choice if she wanted to return to her body. And um, part of her didn't want to because she felt so enveloped in love. And she felt this, you know, like this, it was just incredible. She said, why would I want to go back to that body, that dying body when I am so free and so full of light? And this is so beautiful over here. But um, she decided to go back because, you know, I don't know if it was a, I don't want to get it wrong, but somehow she knew that her work on earth was not done. And so she went back into her body and she made a complete 100% recovery from end stage cancer within a matter of, you know, weeks and maybe a couple months, they could not find a trace of this cancer in her body anymore. She's a thriving, healthy woman who travels the world and talks about this now. And she's an anomaly to the medical world. I mean, she's been in documentaries and she's been studied because nobody has ever come back from this. And And there are so many people that are skeptical that would say, well, that's, you know, a one in a million chance and maybe her body did just recover. That's just a coincidence or any number of things. And at the end of the day, they're right. 
it could be just a coincidence. It could be just a one in a million chance. It could be that she just imagined this experience on the other realm or it's not. And it doesn't really matter because we're not going to be able to scientifically prove it one way or the other. But when you ask yourself, which experience brings you peace, which experience, which way of viewing this, um, viewing life and death, which way brings you closer to where you want to be, which is a feeling of love, right? I mean, that which is fear cannot be love and that which is love cannot be fear. So if it brings you more fear, then it's taking you away from love. If it, if it brings you more love, then it's it's bringing you closer to everything that you want to manifest in your life. So which one would you pick? And it's like, I know for me, I know for Sage that we'll never really know for sure. I mean, actually that's not true. I would say that we both do know, we both do know that our dad is still very much here and but we can't convince just, somebody who doesn't right, know, you know, right. nobody's going to convince anybody here, but it comes down to being a choice. You know, it's your choice every day. You can live every day of your life as though it's a miracle and therefore it is, or you could live every day as though it's not a miracle and therefore it's not, it's yeah. a choice. Yeah. You know, I actually heard this woman's story because I am really into Dr. Joe Dispenza's work. You guys obviously know Dr. Yeah. Joe. I went to his week-long advanced retreat a couple months ago. Like I'm full on his, like wow. one of his big fans. And, you know, his work is is in, insane when it comes to remissions and healing yourself. And and I think I, I heard this woman's story in a video once when of his or something, because I, I think that she was into his work as well. I'm not 100% sure, but I remember something along those lines. And uh, yeah, you know, I, I believe 100% that, we have the ability to heal ourselves. I I know that deep down that we have the ability and, and I, there is science behind it, you know, and he shares a lot yeah. of the science behind it. Um, you know, my only, the only things that I still, I'm not hundred percent about is what happens afterwards and like, you know, different dimensions and spirits. And I know it exists. I just don't know exactly what it entails. You know what I mean? So that's still something I'm still, you know, trying to discover myself. But when it comes to you being completely, you know, in control of what happens to your, your, your life in this human existence, I am 100% behind that. And that's a big principle that I, I stand by. Um, through and through, and even going to one of his week-long advanced uh, retreats back in January, it was like eye-opening. I went by myself. I went to Florida to do it, and I've been into his work for years, and it was crazy. It was I didn't feel like on this planet the entire week. I don't know where I was, but I was just. It was really crazy. It wasn't even like I, I told my friends, go to a meditation retreat for a week. They're like, okay, you're going to come back so relaxed. I'm like, no, this was like intense. Um, but it was really cool there because, you know, you're doing these meditations and these people around you that are sick, you know, they're, they're healing. And it's like, whoa. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I totally oh, and, by that. Yeah. And the crazy yeah. thing about that is that you will have, because you have a belief and a knowing that that you can heal yourself and that we all can, you will have experiences that line up with your level of thinking. And people that say that it's impossible and that the medical community does not support this and that there's no proof of it, there's no scientific evidence, that is the experience that they will have. And it's like, you know, the Course in Miracles describes a miracle as a shift in your perspective or your perception. So it's like, 
the fact that you view yourself as able to heal from, from anything, you will always have experiences that line up with your level of thinking. And why wouldn't you pick to, to think of life that way and to view yourself that way? Mm -hmm. Right. And I think, um, I think that's really beautiful that you can do that because so many people will say, well, without proof, you know, without something that shows me. And that's what our dad used to say was, it's not, you'll believe it when you see it. It's you'll see it when when you you believe it. Yeah. Yeah. You have to have the belief first and then you're in alignment. You're in harmony. I mean, that's Anita didn't come. Anita doesn't claim to have had this miraculous healing. She, she says that she came back into her body knowing that it would heal and therefore it did. It was the belief, you know, that her body was capable, no matter what science said about the type of cancer and the level of cancer that she had, it was her belief. And, and it, and it came to fruition before her eyes in the face of so much doubt. Uh, And I had a really miraculous, not, not to that level, but I had a profound healing experience when I was younger that totally shifted my perspective on um, just, yeah, how our bodies respond to our thoughts. And I'd love to hear that. Yes, please. I would love to hear that. I'll I'll try to do it briefly. Um, When I was like five years old, I developed some bumps on my face and my parents uh, eventually took me to the doctor um, because after a few weeks, they weren't going away. It was like a rash. And the doctor diagnosed it as flat warts. And he said that um, flat warts were pretty common in kids and they were nothing to worry about and that they should heal on their own within a couple months. And um, my parents, well, the reason that I called them my bumps is because when he said warts, I was like, that's going to invite a lot of teasing from my siblings. So we're going to call them bumps. And I ended up writing a children's book called Goodbye Bumps about this story. But anyway, you know, like a year or so goes by and they still had not healed. So my parents took me back to a pediatrician and um, this time they said, okay, they're getting worse. They're not getting better. We should treat them. And they said, you know, you could either burn them off, like freeze dry them off, like what they do to warts, or you could take a medication, but it has all these side effects and it may or may not work. And you have to stay out of the sun and your skin's going to peel and all these things that just did not sound, um, appealing at all to a now six-year-old. So I decided, I said to my parents, I don't want to burn them off and I don't want to take this medication. And they decided to honor that for me. And, um, cause they weren't causing me any harm. They just looked bad, you know, on my face. So we decided to wait anyway, like another year, year and a half goes by. They're still on my face. They've still just proceeded to get worse. There's been no healing taking place. So my parents decided to take me to a dermatologist. We were out in Maui as a family at that time. And um, there was a dermatologist out there who was also a family friend. So my parents took me to him and he said kind of what the other doctor said but he said, it's really time to treat these. You've had them going on three years. They're getting worse. Your immune system is not kicking in and it's a virus and we need to treat the virus. And so I, um, I said to my parents, I still, I don't want to do either of those. I was eight years old, seven and a half. I didn't look in the mirror. I didn't care what my face that I had bumps on my face. The thought of burning something off my face sounded terrifying. And, um, I just wanted to carry on. 
But so my parents said, okay, hold on a second. And they went out into the hallway with the doctor and then they all came back in and they said, okay, you know, we think you have a third option. I said, okay, what's my third option? And they said, we think that you could heal yourself of these bumps and you could do that by talking to them. And I said, okay, going with option number three, that sounds like the easiest one here. And I went home that night and I um, got in bed before I went to sleep. I pulled the covers over my head and I talked to my bumps for about five minutes and then I went to sleep. And the next day, uh, the next night I did the same thing for three nights. I did that five minutes before I went to bed, talked to my bumps. What did you say on the fourth? I'll get there. (laughs) I'll tell you at the end. Um, On the fourth night, I went to talk to my bumps and I reached up to touch my face because the biggest thing that I remember was how they felt that I didn't have smooth skin on my face. Because like I said, I don't really think I looked in the mirror very much at eight years old. And I got in bed and I, and I felt up on my face and I could not find a trace of them. So I ran out of my bed and I ran into my parents' bedroom and I said, they're gone, they're gone, they're gone. And they're like, what's gone? What are you talking about? And I said, my bumps, they're gone. And my dad pulled me up close to him and he looked at my face and he was like, oh my God, they're completely gone. And my mom was like, oh, this is insane. My dad said, what did you say to them? And I said, it's a secret. And I wouldn't tell him. (laughs) And he started to, you know, bribe me. I'll take you to get ice cream. You got to tell me what you said to these. This is material for my work. I'll give you $20. And I wouldn't tell him. And I think I was enjoying the attention. And I didn't tell him for years (laughs) until uh, literally 10 years later, I was 18. And we were talking about it again. And, um, I mean, this was something my dad wrote in some of his books, this story, but he would end it with, and she still hasn't told me what she said to her bums, you know? And when I was 18, I thought, why haven't I told you? I don't know why I'm keeping this a secret. So I (laughs) told him that what I said to my bums, you know, I was eight years old. I said, I love you. I thanked them for coming. And I asked them to leave. And I said, we can't be together anymore. You have to leave. Otherwise they're going to burn you off. But But I just kept telling them that I loved them and I kept surrounding them with love and I pictured them falling off of my face in a peaceful, loving way. And it was so simple because I was, I was so young, you know, Um, but the profound thing for me now as an adult is recognizing that the reason that this worked, the reason I know that it worked is because at that time I had no doubt that it would, you know, I, my parents telling me that I could heal myself of these bumps by talking to them was enough of a reason for me to just believe and know without a shred of a doubt that I could and that they would be gone by this practice of me talking to them. Whereas as an adult, you might think that sounds goofy and you might think, you know, you might be willing to give it a try even, but be saying, if it doesn't work, I'll go back and I'll burn them off because let's be realistic. These are warts and that's what I have to do you know, we're just conditioned a different way than you are when you're a child. And, and tell her what the, what the dermatologist said when dad told Yeah, actually when, when my dad called the dermatologist to tell him, um, cause they were still friends till, you know, the day he passed away and he was still my dad's dermatologist and he always wanted to know what I said. So he, he, he immediately called him on speakerphone and said, she finally told me what she said to her bumps. And he said, what? And he told the the dermatologist and, um, and he started to cry and he was so moved by that because he said, 
I would have pictured that she threatened them and told them that she was going, you know, that she waged war against them, told them they had to leave, told them that she was going to burn them off if they didn't leave and, you know, on and on. And, um, and so he was very touched by the fact that it came from a place of love and that, and I think that that's the other, you know, it was the, it was not having a doubt, but it was also doing it with love because everything in life is energy and has an energy, including things like viruses. They're living organisms or, you know, I don't know what the correct way to describe it is, but a a virus is something that's alive. It taps into the same loving energy that, that wheat are tapped into, you know, so you don't attack. There is this sense of like, we in medicine in the Western world, at least we attack something that's bad. We, we battle cancer, we attack, you know, and um, it was just a different approach doing it from a place of love. That is so beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that. That is amazing. And especially after three years and four days. Yeah, exactly. And they've never come back. (laughs) Yeah. That proves it. That proves it. And I'll share something quickly with you. I know we were running over an hour now. Usually my podcasts are 40 minutes. I've been loving talking. No, don't be sorry. I love this. Um, Ever since I was younger, I had um, keratosis pilaris bumps in my arms. Do you guys know what that is? Like the little tiny chicken skin type of bumps. Okay. Yeah. People have on, on like the backs of their arms and I had it all over my arms and about a year and a bit ago, um, I was doing a lot of this work, meditation work and, um, like studying, you know, Dr. Joe Dispenza's work. And I started meditating on it and they went away. And after Mm -hmm. over a decade of having them, and I've noticed since a year and a bit ago, when I, you know, created them to heal, um, you know, I, I stopped meditating on it and they'd come back a little bit weirdly enough. And I think because it was so deep rooted, maybe, and, and I truly now believe that it's based on when I'm feeling insecure and like feeling unworthy within myself, they kind of show up again. Cause like, for some reason, it's like, you know, the outside of me, like my arms, like it's, you know, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. And now they're, they're pretty much gone again. Cause I've been, you know, doing the work and staying consistent with my, you know, healthy mindset routines and my morning routine, my meditation, all that, but, um, they, but significantly gone, um, compared to how it was when I was younger. And yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's really cool. So I can kind of keep tabs on when I'm in a good headspace or not, they kind of come back a little bit. Um, but yeah. it, it's just, it's so cool. It's well, there's so, cool. so many autoimmune type mm-hmm. of diseases that doctors and science don't know why they happen. And you have to believe that there's a mind control to it, that our minds make us crazy at times. You know, of course, it's going to reflect on your body in different ways. So if, if you can't work on it from the body, work on it from the mind, because yeah. that's something that, you know, you can at least control. Yeah. Try to control. Okay. Yeah. And I think it's, it's completely in line with what we were saying before with even, you know, like the wanting to have signs from somebody that passed away or wanting to have the healing or all of these different uh, alternative ways of looking at things. It's like, you can really get to a point where you can understand that you're going to have the experience that you expect. And that if you are open to everything and you expect miracles and you expect, you know, signs or you expect healings that you live in a universe that supports that belief. And if you are somebody that thinks that it's not possible and you'll believe it when you see it and 
um, you know, you need to have proof, then that's going to be your experience as well. And so it's like, for all things in life, why not, why not take the choice that brings you closer to all of the things that you want, including the miraculous healings, I would say have a have a mindset that is open to that as a possibility for you. um, As opposed to thinking it's not possible for you and see which one you get, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It really, I, I believe from my personal experience with all of this work, it, it really just stems from making the decision, I think, and mm-hmm. just knowing with full conviction that that is going to be your reality and just knowing that deep knowing and, um, and it's, it's happened in many other areas in my life when it comes to creating the life of my dreams or things happening and opportunities presenting themselves to me. I've been really good at manifesting my dream life when it comes to, you know, where I live, how I live, what I make, who my, what what my relationships are like, uh, the impact. And, and, and that's something I've created almost effortlessly because I've been so good at conditioning myself to just believe that this is just how my life is. And it's just Mm -hmm. always going to end up that way. And I've had a lot of aha moments over the past year where I'm looking at my current life compared to a couple of years ago. And I'm like, why is this not even surprising to me? I always knew I was going to get here. And it's like that deep knowing. And I think mm-hmm. anyone, even if you don't have that innately right now, I'm saying this because it's like anyone can take that on now for their future, you know? Right. Yeah. You're going to spend the time you... anyway. So yeah. why not right. spend it getting closer to where you want to be and start with your mind? Yeah. Sorry. And I love just how you said that thing that it was, you got to this place in your life effortlessly because so much of um, growing up with our our dad, you know, he, he taught us to, to look at resistance in life and to listen to it, you know, like, you know, that song, I hope you dance by Leanne Womack, you Mm -hmm. know, that one. So it's full of all these cliche lines of, I hope you uh, never fear those mountains in the distance. And then and when you get the chance to sit it out or dance, I hope you dance. My dad loved that song. And one time it came on when I was in the car with him and he said, um, okay, I want you to listen to this song because I agree with every line in this song except for one and see if you can figure out which one. And I don't know if I got it right or wrong, but at the end of the song, he said it was, uh, I hope you never settle for the path of least resistance because, and he said, because you should always take the path of least resistance. You know, when the universe is offering you resistance, that's your energy is not aligned with what you're, you know, going after. Whereas like you just said, effortlessly, you know, you imagined these things, they came to you, you created them without a lot of resistance in your path because it was the right path for you. And I think so often we ignore the the energetic feeling that we get from what we're doing. We ignore resistance. And I try to really pay attention to that. Like, am I resisting what's happening in my life right now? Is that, and if I am to stop and, and I, we, you know, I know we're way out of time here, but we write about it in the book and I wrote about it in the book times when I recognized that I was resisting life and when I made that shift into flowing and allowing, how it, beautiful things came to me beyond my wildest dreams, you know, beyond what I had imagined for myself. But it was not until I surrendered aloud and, and followed that path of least resistance that wow. they started to show up for me. Beautiful. 
Wow. Well, (laughs) it's been so incredible speaking to both of you. I loved this conversation. I can't believe how quickly time has passed by. (laughs) And I just, I can't wait to dive into the book. I can't wait to read more about it. I love how both of you think and it's just been so great meeting you and you like, too. You're always welcome back yeah. on the show. hundred <laughs> percent. So <laughs> thank, uh, thank you so you. much. Yes, of course. Let the listeners know where they can buy your book, where they can find your book and where they can find you guys. Yeah, it's Amazon and Barnes and Noble, all the typical places you can find a book. It's not available on Kindle yet, but I'm trying to find out why, but it's on audible. Um, <laughs> we have done, we a recorded lot of- it. We read it ourselves, yes. so yeah. you'll hear us reading it, which I think some people really like, and maybe that. a couple don't. But, <laughs> um, but yeah. um, I mean, Sage and I are both uh, on Facebook and Instagram, and um, yeah. that's how we connected with you, and uh, that's how we've been connecting with everybody. So, social media is right. the best place to find us. Amazing! Oh wow! Thank you guys so much. I really appreciate it. And yeah, thank we'll you. Talk-